This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today, I'm proud to announce one of the most important deals in the history of U.S. pharmaceutical industries. On July 28th, President Trump announced he was granting a large government loan to help a certain American company ramp up its manufacturing of drugs. You remember this company? It's called, from the good old camera age, the old days. What was maybe most interesting about this announcement wasn't the loan itself. It was which company the money was going to. It's called Kodak. And it's going to be right here in America. Well, my first impression was, that's weird. Andrew Edgecliffe Johnson is the U.S. business editor for the Financial Times. He was puzzled when he heard the news that Kodak was getting government money to reinvent itself as a pharmaceuticals brand. With this new agreement, my administration is using the Defense Production Act to provide a $765 million loan to support the launch of Kodak Pharmaceuticals. It's a great name when you think of it. Such a great name. It was one of the great brands in the world. It was a head-scratcher. Uh, This was not a company that we had ever associated uh, with the purpose for which the loan was supposed to be designed. Because when we think of Kodak, we don't think pharmaceuticals. We think photographs. We think film, which is actually the root of Kodak's many problems over the last couple of decades. The company is in deep trouble, mainly because nobody buys film anymore. Kodak completely missed the boat on the consumer switch to digital photography which had left the company treading water for a while and then, more recently, drowning. Until President Trump's announcement suddenly threw it a lifeline. Remember that before this, Kodak had a very long record of losses, so much so that its auditors had actually questioned its ability to keep going as recently as May. The stock was very beaten up. It was trading at a pretty low price. Suddenly, It shoots up because there's the prospect of a whole new business venture. The stock rocketed to 15 times its previous value. It seemed a great American brand had been revitalized. And then, pretty quickly, doubt crept in. There were suspicions about why exactly the White House had awarded this loan to Kodak, which had zero experience making drugs. There were further suspicions about whether some Kodak executives might have personally benefited. Well, this was initially hailed by a lot of senior people in the Trump administration, including the president himself, as a great victory. And over time, one by one, the officials who are most closely involved in that decision-making have distanced themselves from the loan and from Kodak as more questions have arisen about the process that led to that loan being almost granted. The loan's on hold now. Kodak stock has plummeted back to earth, and the main result of this whole incident has been a flurry of investigations, some still ongoing, more likely to come, all trying to figure out what the heck happened. Meanwhile, Kodak's back where it started, still a shell of its former self, struggling to find its place in a world that's left it behind. How did a once vibrant company stop developing and start to fade? And how will it emerge from this current bizarre Kodak moment? 
I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. Today on the show, Mama Don't Take My Kodak Loan Away, the picture-perfect past and out-of-focus future of the Eastman Kodak Company. It's the 1870s. A junior bank clerk named George Eastman is 24 years old. He's about to go on a vacation, and he wants to take some photographs of his travels. So he looks into getting a camera, and he realizes there's a problem. Cameras of that era were gigantic. You needed to bring your own chemicals wherever you went and unwieldy glass plates to expose your images on. And you probably needed some lessons just to understand how to use all that stuff. I don't think that most people really even thought about having their own camera. Mia Feynman is a curator of photography at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. If you wanted a picture of yourself, say, or of your family, you would go to a portrait studio and sit very still and have a formal portrait made. Eastman wondered if he could change that. What if he could build a camera that was portable? And better yet, what if he could make it so easy to use anyone could take a picture? He soon became obsessed with making a camera, as he put it, as convenient as the pencil. George Eastman had never finished high school, but he was a born tinkerer. He fashioned himself a laboratory and launched his own photography company based in Rochester, New York, where he'd grown up. And over the next decade or so, he hit on a series of brilliant innovations. He figured out how to expose images on flexible paper film instead of stiff glass plates. He figured out how to roll the paper up so that dozens of negatives would fit into a compact cylindrical cartridge. He figured out how to make it so you didn't need to develop pictures right when you took them. You could wait and develop them later. Putting all this together, in 1888, Eastman created a device that would change photography forever. He called it the Kodak camera. The word Kodak meant nothing. He just thought it sounded cool. It was basically a black box about the size of a toaster, and it came with a 100 exposure roll of film inside of it, and it cost $25, which was the equivalent of like an iPad today. So it was marketed to uh, you know, middle-class customers. With the Kodak camera, for the first time, amateur photography became possible on a wide scale. It wasn't just that Eastman made it simpler for people to take their own photos. It was that he made it simpler for them to get their hands on the photos they took. Rather than having to develop the photographs themselves, they just sent the whole camera back to the Kodak plant in Rochester, New York. And Kodak would develop and print the photographs and send the prints back to the people along with the camera reloaded with a new roll of film. It was an entirely new concept and Eastman knew exactly how to sell it. Marketing was a huge part of what made this camera and this approach to photography successful. Eastman took ads in all of the major magazines and newspapers. He came up with the brilliant slogan, you press the button, we do the rest, uh, which is just perfect. And he often featured women and children in the advertisements, presumably because they would have no technical expertise at all at this point in the late 19th century, to show that, look, even a woman can use a camera now. And that was actually a very forward-looking idea. A year after his first camera, Eastman introduced another. It was even smaller and easier to use, and it only cost a dollar. He called it the Brownie. It was a huge success, 
And as the 20th century began, Americans took up amateur photography in massive numbers. In hindsight, Eastman wasn't just inventing new products. He was inventing a new reality, one in which regular people could visually capture the things they see around them, where they could record their outings and vacations, where, and this was maybe the most compelling product feature of all, they could preserve their family's everyday moments and milestone events. Eastman explicitly encouraged that in their advertising. So they really started saying, you know, you need to document every stage of your baby's life, you know, and so the ads would show, you know, baby pictures, pictures of little children, pictures of their graduation, pictures of their wedding. Um, And so that also became, in a way, a kind of need or desire that was created partly through marketing. George Eastman was generous with his money, giving Kodak stock to his employees and donating millions to universities and dental clinics. In 1932, at 77 years old, suffering from chronic pain and immobility due to spinal problems, he shot himself in the heart. Having changed the visual landscape of people's lives and transformed their hazy memories into framed pictures on mantelpieces, Eastman left behind a note that read, My work is done. Why wait? Though Eastman was gone, the Eastman Kodak Company rolled on. Having already cornered the market for black and white film, in 1935, Kodak pioneered color photography for amateurs. Its new line of color film was a technological leap over what had come before. And it became such a household name and such an enduring bestseller that Paul Simon wrote a hit song about it four decades after it was introduced. Kodak continued to dominate market share in camera and film sales, with fat margins that kept the cash pouring in. In 1961, it introduced the popular carousel film projector, which allowed American dads to click through a whole wheel of slides, capturing the minutiae of a summer vacation to the Grand Canyon. Big. Bigger. Big as life. Imagine showing pictures of your own youngsters as big as they are, and in glorious color. It's easy with Kodak color slides. In 1963 came the Instamatic, the most compact and simple camera yet. It's this way, man. Drop in the film. Take one. Take two. Take three. Take four flash pictures without changing bulbs. In color, of course. Kodak advertising introduced a concept, the Kodak moment, that encouraged people to translate their lives into a series of photographs. And that's what people did. And now... For Kodak, Paul Anka. Good morning, yesterday. You wake up and time has slipped away. Remember, will you remember the times of your life? Kodak Film, for the times of your life. By 1976, Kodak made 85% of all cameras and 90% of all films sold in the United States. But the 1970s brought a new invention that would upend photography all over again, and in the process, destroy Kodak's business. In what turned out to be a piece of bitter historical irony, this invention came from a Kodak employee. It was an interesting experience for me. I was about 25 years old and I hadn't done any of this stuff before. More on that when we come back. 
Stephen Sasson went to work as an engineer for the Eastman Kodak Company straight out of college in the 1970s. Kodak was a profit powerhouse at that point, and it plowed a big chunk of those profits into research and development. There was a piece of cutting-edge technology the company was curious about, something called a charge-coupled device, which could transform light into electrical signals. So Stephen Sasson's bosses encouraged him to experiment with it, to see if he could create something useful. So I did all of this uh, in a back lab, you know, while really nobody was paying attention. I begged and borrowed and stole parts for this thing. And it's kind of what I did as a kid in Brooklyn. I scavenged parts from old TV sets and stuff. So I used to build, I I like to build things that I thought about. Uh, It's how I kind of express myself. The thing he was building was about the size of a toaster, around the same size as George Eastman's first Kodak camera. And just like Eastman's camera, it would change photography forever. In 1975, after a year of tinkering, Sasson carried his strange new contraption down the hall, pointed its lens at a colleague, and snapped a black-and-white, head-and-shoulders portrait of her. We were amazed. We were amazed that it worked. We knew a thousand reasons why it might not work. Sasson had just taken the world's first digital photo, using the world's first digital camera. He wasn't sure what kind of impact his new invention would have. Remember, personal computers were in their infancy, and there was no consumer internet. So it wasn't clear what you would do with a digital photo even if you took one. Maybe you could look at it on your TV set. It also took about half a minute to record one image and another half a minute to upload it somewhere. Still, Sasson sensed this thing, once the kinks were ironed out, might be transformative. So he started giving demos around the company. Picture a long conference room with a table down the middle of it, maybe 12 feet wide, 20 feet long kind of thing, windowless. And people would sit on either side of this long table and I would come to the front of the room, walk in with my camera, and I would take a picture, whoever was sitting on the right side, right at the front, I would take a head and shoulder shot of them. It took 23 seconds to record that image that had been stored internally in the memory onto the tape. So while that was happening, to cleverly disguise the fact that I couldn't take another picture for 23 seconds, I described what this thing was because nobody had ever seen anything like this. I was unprepared for the challenges that I got from the audiences that I presented to. Those audiences were Kodak middle managers, and they weren't much interested in learning about Sasson's breakthrough. They mainly wanted to suppress it. I would say just about every meeting that I had, and there must have been at least 20 different meetings held throughout 1976, I lost control of the meeting. You know, they just started peppering me with questions. And I was unprepared for the questions because as a technical person, I thought they'd ask me, you know, how I got all this technology to work. But they didn't ask me that. They asked me why I did this. And I said, well, I just think it's kind of an interesting approach to photography. Well, what's the problem with photography? Why would people want to look at their pictures on television sets? What would an electronic photo album look like? There's no prints here. What would the photo finisher do? What's the business model behind this? For more than 70 years, Kodak had thrived with a razor and blades model. You get the razor, in this case, the camera, into as many people's hands as possible. And then you sell them blade after blade, or in this case, roll after roll of film. It was an incredibly profitable scheme. Steven Sasson's digital camera, which he actually described as filmless photography, threatened to eliminate the whole film part of the business, which was the part where Kodak really made its money. So Kodak executives naturally hated the idea, and they didn't do much with it. 
Kodak's film business kept on rolling along without a hitch. Meanwhile, Sasson kept tinkering with digital photography, under the radar, for more than a decade. By 1989, he'd managed to design a digital camera he was pretty proud of, one he thought might appeal to lots of consumers. When we showed it to marketing, we asked them, could you sell this camera? And they said, oh, sure we could, but we won't. If it comes at the expense of one film camera, why would we? Where's the, where's the business model? Why am I going to disappoint my customers? First, the image quality probably isn't as good as film. And second of all, the learning curve and the expense of this is really high. And, and why would we take that chance? You know? and, and so at that point, um, I became very frustrated with the company. Sasson stayed at Kodak, but he eventually transferred into a different department. It's now been 45 years since he invented digital photography, and chances are pretty good you took a digital photo within the last few days. Chances are even better you didn't take that photo using anything made by Kodak. The company made some money over the patents Stephen Sasson had registered during his work on digital photography, but it didn't make any enduringly successful product lines using those patents. Other people did that. First, the camera companies like Canon and Nikon, and then the phone makers like Apple and Samsung. The digital revolution swept through consumer photography, and it left Kodak behind. The firm last turned a profit in 2007, the same year Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. The decline that came after that was swift. Eastman Kodak says it will eliminate up to 3,000 more jobs, and that is on top of 25 to 27,000 people the company has already said it will lay off by the end of this year. This company is overhauling its businesses in order to transform itself so it can compete in a world of digital cameras. Eastman Kodak CEO... It caused some real hardship in the company. Uh, and so a lot of people were let go. A lot of people were redistributed. Uh, portions of the company were sold off. So it was, um, it was not a happy time. Sasson says Kodak's failure to adapt stemmed from a combination of short-term thinking and collective inertia. They faced enormous challenges being a publicly held company that had to pay dividends. To jump into a business that made less money was not viewed very well on Wall Street, you know. It also, inside the company, there was tremendous resistance to this kind of a change. People had spent their lives developing really unique set of skills in the design and manufacture and marketing of photographic products. And so, to change all of that and ask somebody to just all of a sudden do something radically and totally different is very difficult. In 2012, Kodak filed for bankruptcy, and it stumbled along since then. These days, it's largely a B2B commercial printing shop. But the size of that business is teensy compared to Kodak's glory days. In 2018, Kodak attempted to hop on the blockchain craze with something called Kodak Coin, meant to be a sort of cryptocurrency watermark for photographers. That didn't go anywhere. Stephen Sasson retired in 2009. He's remarkably chipper given the company he spent his whole life at managed to utterly squander his world-changing invention. I don't regret my career at Kodak at all. I, I really had the honor and privilege of working with the smartest people in the world when it comes to imaging. You know, these are the guys that fixed the Hubble telescope when the mirror was ground wrong. And, and I had a chance to personally eat lunch with some of these world famous guys. And I learned everything I know about photography from my friends and colleagues of 35 years there. He still lives near Kodak headquarters, and he still seems hopeful there's a sunnier Kodak moment coming just around the corner. When President Trump made that big announcement this summer about a $765 million government loan, with Kodak attempting to reinvent itself as a pharmaceutical company, Sasson followed the news with a lot of excitement. 
you know, living in Rochester, New York, you couldn't miss that one. But I did hear a lot of people questioning, well, why Kodak? You know, it doesn't surprise me at all. A Kodak has an enormous capability when it comes to chemicals, chemical processing, especially at volume. They probably have the capability and the infrastructure to do exactly this. So I wasn't surprised at that. I know that there's a lot of political angst about it. Indeed, there was a lot of angst about that loan to Kodak, how it happened and who it might have improperly benefited. This gets a little complicated, but here are some of the potentially sketchy circumstances that come into play around this loan. First, and most fundamentally, why would this money go to Kodak? Why not give funds to make pharmaceuticals to, I don't know, a pharmaceuticals company? Also, why was this loan so big, larger than the entire existing market cap of Kodak? And why was all this money routed through an international aid arm of the government, one that generally funds foreign projects, when Kodak is a domestic company? Incidentally, the head of this international aid organization also happens to be one of Jared Kushner's college roommates, which is maybe important or maybe a total red herring. Now, moving to the Kodak side of things. Kodak seems to have pitched the original idea for this loan. That's how it all began. And Kodak lobbied the government about this in ways that have invited some scrutiny. Kodak also botched its own announcement that the loan was happening, jumping the gun and letting some stock traders get the news ahead of the broader markets. Maybe most troubling, Kodak executives and board members just happened to load up on Kodak stock right before this huge loan was announced, resulting in gigantic paper profits for them when the stock jumped on the news. All this brings us back to Andrew Edgecliff Johnson, the business editor at the Financial Times, who's investigated some of the dodgier aspects of this saga. I think the big question is what possessed the Trump administration to see Kodak after decades of decline as a viable partner in this initiative to bring pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the US at scale in a way that can make a meaningful difference to the next pandemic. On the basis of a couple of site visits and a pitch deck, a lot of very senior people in the Trump administration got very excited about this idea. Now they've put the whole loan on hold pending further exploration of these serious questions about the process that led to it being proposed in the first place. The subcommittee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess of the subcommittee at any time. Without objection, this hearing is entitled Insider Trading and Stock Option Grants, the, an examination of corporate integrity in the COVID-19 pandemic. Congress has held some hearings that have addressed the Kodak loan, and it's also caught the SEC's attention. It might be revealed that there was massive wrongdoing here. But so far, while there's a whole lot of smoke, it's not clear if there's much fire. For instance, like Stephen Sasson, Andrew thinks the White House's notion that Kodak could go into pharmaceuticals wasn't totally crazy. Well, companies do pivot, and the way that this was initially billed to the public was this is one of the historic pivots that we've seen in corporate life. And there was some justification for the idea. There was some rationale to it, not least because Fuji, Kodak's traditional Japanese film competitor, has done a very successful job of getting into a broader chemicals business. So there is some record of this. As for the possible stock market shenanigans, Kodak commissioned an independent review of its actions, conducted by the law firm Aiken Gump. That review largely defended Kodak, 
and pointed out that while Kodak executives like CEO Jim Continenza profited on paper from the brief stock jump after the loan was announced, they didn't actually sell any shares. Whatever its sins may have been, Kodak ended up losing the loan. Less than two weeks after President Trump's announcement and facing angry inquiries from congressional Democrats, the government put the money on hold and Kodak stock plunged. Even if the darkest theories about what happened here get disproven, Andrew Edscliffe Johnson says this Michigas was a bad look for Kodak. And he says the White House didn't come out of it shining either. How fishy was this whole incident on a scale of, you know, fresh sushi to like eight-day-old rotting mackerel? To you, how fishy was this? I think it's the sushi you look at in the fridge the following day and wonder whether it's still safe. If you read the report that the Independent Committee of the Board commissioned, there is a reasonable explanation for most of Kodak's behavior. But the optics of executives and board members loading up on shares ahead of a clearly market-moving announcement, even if they thought there was a lot of doubt about whether that announcement would happen until the last minute, the optics of a beaten-up company trying to present itself as the answer to one of America's great strategic problems. All of that adds up to the picture of a pretty shabby industrial policy. And I don't think that it is yet proven that it was dirtier than that. But I think it is a reminder that when governments and businesses try to come together, it's often rushed, it's often poorly thought through, and there's often a whiff of crony capitalism. In the end, what happened here might have been less about some deeply nefarious plot and more about typical low-level government corruption, maybe mixed with Donald Trump's characteristic knee-jerk affinity for a once glamorous American brand. One that, by the way, also happened to be a big sponsor of The Apprentice. I think the fact is every American is familiar with the Kodak brand. Even now, decades after we all put away our film cameras, it still has a power that's far larger than its commercial clout. And so it's an interesting idea that you can take this great American brand, which isn't a great American business anymore, and turn it into a great American business again. Back in its 20th century heyday, at the height of its success, Kodak wasn't really selling cameras and film. It was selling nostalgia. All its ads were about how important it is to capture a good feeling and make a hard copy of it before it inevitably disappears. Which makes it fitting that the company itself is now banking on nostalgia to save it. Eastman Kodak has very little going for it as an industrial enterprise at this point. What it has is the nostalgia its name evokes. Any recovery for the company will almost certainly be dependent on Americans' fond memories of the brand at its peak. No wonder Kodak wants to invite us to dust off that old photo album and relive the great times we spent together. That's our show for today. This episode was produced by Jess Miller with help from Madeline Ducharme and Cleo Levin. Technical direction from Merritt Jacob. Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of podcasts at Slate. June Thomas is senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. 
If you like thrilling tales like the one you heard today, please consider rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find out about us. Next week on the show, how do you get the attention of a customer with a very short window, say nine months? Cool colors, anodized aluminum, welded aluminum, being able to go over rougher terrain with it, the suspensions, just almost any functionality that you'd see kind of in automotive and then translating that into a stroller. That's next week on Thrilling Tales of Modern Capitalism. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, here's our pitch. It's only $35 for the first year, and it helps us make this show and all the great podcasts you get from Slate. Sign up now at slate.com slash thrilling plus. Thanks for listening.